We're continuing our series on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and there, there is a, a vast multiplicity of things that the Holy Spirit does. And, and to be honest, in the time that we're taking to do this, we cannot exhaust all of the things that the Holy Spirit does in a single series. Uh, but t- tonight, I'm going to be uh, zeroing in on several specific works of the Holy Spirit, particularly through understanding the symbolism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, what happens is when, when one begins teaching uh, uh, and talking about the Holy Spirit, you know, per- but particularly in a Protestant church, but even more particularly in a Pentecostal or Charismatic church, when one begins to talk about the Holy Spirit, then everybody sort of wants to jump the gun. Uh, everybody goes, when, when are we going to get to the upper room? When are we going to get to the gifts? And I promise you, we, we're going to cover those things. Uh, but but I, I need you to understand that the Holy Spirit was not invented in the upper room. You know, uh, w- what I've tried to do is go back and show that, that the Holy Spirit was there and was active from the very beginning of everything. Now, I'm not going to take a lot of time to, to repeat two weeks worth of teaching, but we just to review a little bit, we talked about the fact that the Holy Spirit is the breath of God. This is Genesis chapter 1. He's the breath of God, or, or also could be translated the wind of God. Uh, in Hebrew, Ruach HaKodesh, uh, which just means Holy Spirit. He's the Holy Spirit that brooded over the face of the waters and, and reporting to God inside the divine com- community of the, of the Godhead. So we know that the Holy Spirit is pre-creation. The third person of the Trinity, He is the Spirit of God. And then we talked about the Holy Spirit as the breath of life. If you remember that, it, the Holy Spirit is called the Lord, the giver of life. The, the, the breath of life entered into Adam and He became a living soul. And, and when we, we, we talked a little bit about the fact that we're not talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and, or the fullness of the Spirit in the sense of New Testament realities, not like what we think of it, but I'm talking about the Holy Spirit as the Lord, as the giver of life. So when, when God breathed into Adam, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of life, made Adam come alive. You know, the truth is, every person who is alive has the Spirit of life. It's the Holy Spirit that, that, that imparts that life. And if God were to withdraw His Holy Spirit from you, it's, it's not that you're no longer a Christian, it's that you're no longer alive. Nobody, I think of it, say it this way, um, you know, nobody on the face of the planet, no matter how evil or pagan they may be, has any idea what life would be like outside the presence of God because, because it's His presence and His Spirit that, that gives life to us in the first place. So uh, every person that's alive has a spirit of life. And, and uh, we see that on the cross. You know, when Jesus gave up the ghost, and that's an old saying we say, and the King James uses that terminology, but ghost is really just a synonym for spirit. He gave up his spirit, which means he released the spirit of life from his physical body. The breath of life leaves. And it has nothing to do with, uh, in this uh, terminology, in this what we're talking about, it has nothing to do with Christianity or sanctification or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's just about life. And then last week we talked about the spirit of holiness. And it is no mere accident that the Spirit of God is called the Holy Spirit. He is the Spirit of holiness. According to Romans chapter 1, He's the Spirit of holiness that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. And if you remember, we spent some time talking about He is the Spirit of I am who I am. 
again, just a quick summary. And if, you, if, you, if you're not understanding this or you're a little bit lost, go back and watch last week's lesson. It's on our website, restorationlifechurch.tv. You can see it on there. Uh, but, but God is, I am who I am. Uh, from the burning bush, that was where that came from. He is, he is never merely a part of who He is. He is never a memory. There is no part of Him that is su- superfluous. There is nothing in God's character or nature that if it were removed would make Him a better God than He is. And there is nothing missing in His character and nature that if added would make Him a better God than He is. So our God is altogether Himself, altogether perfect, altogether holy, and we know the character and nature of His holiness, which is, according to 1 John, that God is love. So God is holiness, is I am, is love. God is I am, is love. So all that to say, and you can and that's a lot to, uh, that, that we talked about in a lot more depth last week. But let's begin with what we're going to looking at tonight. I wonder if there's anybody here that's old enough to remember the educational manipulative called flashcards. Anybody here remember flashcards? You remember those things? We, 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 uh, I don't think they use flashcards anymore in schools. Uh, and you, you want to know why? You know why? Because they actually worked. <laughs> and so, and that's, you know, we, don't, we wouldn't want educational theory to bow to practical reality, but flashcards worked. There's no question about that. And the purpose of flashcards was that if you see it in one context and become familiar with it in that context, then when the context changes, the truth doesn't change. So you remember giving an idea what I'm talking about. The teacher would hold up a card and it said three plus two. And and you yell out five, five, five. And and she turned the the card over and revealed that the answer was in fact five. So the the idea of a flashcard was that you became so familiar with the picture of the problem, three plus two, that, that if it's three plus two when the teacher holds up the card and you're trying to, you know, you're there trying to shout out, be the first one to shout out the correct answer to get the prize, if it's three plus two equals five on that card, then it's three plus two equals five on an arithmetic test or on a pop quiz. That's, that's why flashcards work. It's, it's seeing something in one context then learning to recognize it so that when you see it in another context, it clicks in your mind. That's the whole idea. Now you say, why in the world are you talking about flashcards? Well, here's why. It is my own particular, I don't know, maybe peculiar hermeneutic that the entire Old Testament could actually be summarized as a series of flashcards. That God is saying, see this? You're going to see it again and again. You, you, you'll see it again and again and again. And then when you see it over here in an entirely different context, you're going to say, okay, this is that. So do you see what I'm trying to say? So now next week we're, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about the upper, upper room. But let me just tease you with this uh, for an example. Uh, at the end of the upper room experience... After all of the the pyrotechnics have calmed down, Peter is asked, and we're going to come back to this actually at the end of our lesson today. Peter is asked, what happened in here? And he answers, this is that. This is that which was prophesied by Joel. So what he's saying is, I recognize this 
as something that we saw on the flashcard 850 years ago. You know, John the Baptist uses the same concept when he points to Jesus on the banks of the Jordan River. And he says this, and you've heard this many, many times. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Well, that's, that's not language that was peculiar to that setting. That wasn't John saying something new that nobody had ever heard of before. Every, everybody there understood exactly what he was talking about because they weren't 21st century Christ, Christians. They were 1st century Jews. They understood the language. That, that's the language of redemption. The lamb that takes away this in the world. They understood what he said, he said that all of the blood, all the rivers of blood, all the sacrifices, all the lambs, all the heifers, all the goats, all the, 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 the sacrifices, all of that was all about this, this moment. So now what we're going to do tonight, we're going to talk about flashcards about the Holy Spirit. Th these are symbolic flashcards. They, there, there might be more symbols of, of the Holy Spirit than these, but... But I'm going to deal with these specific symbols tonight. Wind, fire, oil, water, and a dove. Wind, fire, oil, water, and dove. Not necessarily in that order. In fact, we won't be going in that order. These are symbols of the Holy Spirit. Now, in those symbols, in those representations of the character and nature of the Holy Spirit, each one of those symbols reveals some specific ramification or some nuance about the character and the nature of the Holy Spirit. And as we explore these and see how they were used in the Old Testament, then we'll see how they are picked up again in the New Testament. And, and you'll see how, as they, uh, how they unfold as symbolic flashcards, pictures, of you, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. So, so let's take oil first. Turn to 1 Samuel 16, verse 13. 1 Samuel 16, 13. This is what it says. And to give you a little context here, this is where Samuel is, uh, has gone to Jesse's house to anoint the next king of Israel after Saul has been rejected by God. And he's already seen all the other boys come in. And God says, no, not any of them. And he says, is there another one? He said, well, there's, there's the youngest, but he's out taking care of the sheep. Jesse didn't even think he was important enough to call in. So finally they bring David in. And David and God says, this is my man. And this is what happens in that moment. First Samuel 16, 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him. That's David in the midst of his brothers, which, by the way, is probably why uh, later on when uh, when David goes to see the armies, his brothers in the army, in the battle of the Philistines, when Goliath comes out and his brother is so angry at him, it's probably because he's going back to this moment and saying, well, how come he gets to be anointed king? Because he did it right, it says he's in the midst of his brothers. And it says, then after that, listen, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David, or came upon David, from that day forward. Now, throughout the Old Testament, oil is used as a symbol of the Holy Spirit in two different ways. Oil, and this is the, the, the most significant, the first and pro most prominent way, oil was a symbol of the Holy Spirit's anointing, as in the anointing of authority or, or of power, uh, the sense of a coming upon of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on a person for, for power, for authority, for kingliness, for, uh, pr for prophetic power, power. And it's very, very important because 
um, because of the way that it happened in the Old Testament, most people in the Old Testament thought of the Holy Spirit as being only for kings or, and for prophets and for heroes. Like, you know, Samson got the Holy Spirit. David got the Holy Spirit. Isaiah got the Holy Spirit. However, you get to Joel chapter 2 and the shocking language of Joel chapter 2 defies this, this limitation that they place. The, the, the truth is the idea of just plain old regular folks receiving the Holy Spirit would not only be shocking to these pre-Christian Jews, it would be actually a little frightening to them. It, it would be a little scary to them. And the reason I say that, if you remember when Israel was, uh, after they had uh, escaped from, from uh, Egypt and they'd crossed the Red Sea and they get to the place where God is going to deliver the law to them on the mountain. And, and if you remember, I don't know if you realize this, but but God actually at first invited all of the people of Israel to come up on the mountain, not just Moses. But what happened was, God says, I want you to all come up here. And then there's all this thunder and lightning and darkness and everything and all this stuff. It's, you know, it's really a wild scene. It's kind of crazy. And, and all the people, basically, they, they look at Moses and say, um, why don't you go? That's what they did. It's so like, well, we're, we're okay right here. We'll be here when you get back. You, you go, you go. And so anyway, there, 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 in that moment, there was this sense of unappreci- uh, the, uh, this unapproachable power of God, almost a terror of God. So, so the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was given by sovereign fiat, by, by divine choice to a prophet, to a king. Or if you read the book of Judges, the Spirit would come upon one of the judges. And that's an unfortunate word because uh, we're not studying them right now, but they they were not judges the way we think of judges. We think of a judge as somebody sitting behind a bench saying, well, this was, you're guilty or not guilty or whatever. But they were really just leaders that were not kings, but they were leaders that God raised up during specific uh, moments in the life of the nation of Israel where he raised them up because they had, they had fallen away to a certain degree. Things were going badly, and he would raise up a leader to rescue them when they needed it. But, but, and, and so it was people like that that got the Holy Spirit. But, but you need to understand also that you know, a prophet or a king or somebody like that getting this, it, it wasn't always, uh, always a happy thing. God, God has always felt the liberty to jerk his prophets through knotholes. I mean, it's true. You read some of the things the prophets went through. I remember Dr. Mark Rutland talking about when he was president of Southeastern University in Florida. He said that every now and again, some kid would come up to him and he'd say something like this. The kid would say, I just feel like God is calling me to the office of prophet. Would you pray with me for that anointing? And he'd look at him and he'd say, Absolutely. Absolutely. But just, just before, before we do that, I, I just want to say a couple of things. Prophets were thrown down wells. They were sawn in half. They were rejected. They were despised. They were cast out. John the Baptist was, had his head cut off. Some were tortured. Some were killed by the sword. Some were chained up and cast into prison. Some were stoned to death. Some had their backs cut open by the whips. All of that is wrapped up in the spirit of prophecy. So kneel down. And, and, and every one of them, every single one of them said, uh, you, 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 you know, uh, let's just wait on that. <laughs> See what I'm saying? 
See, I mean, look at David. The oil was poured on David at his father's house. And in that moment, that prophetic anointing came upon him as king. And there, there is a sense in which one could, may look at that and say that was a wonderful thing. And, and you could say, hey, anoint me to be king. But there's another sense when you look at the full picture of David's life that basically, uh, you know, that moment disturbed and messed up the rest of David's life in a lot of ways. It, it gave him many responsibilities he had to deal with. And there were consequences as a result of that that were, that were, that were not easy to deal with. The idea, though, is still, e even in the contemporary church, we, we, still, we still use that same kind of language when we talk about anointing. That, that comes from this idea of the Holy Spirit as oil. Um, you know, somebody uh, speaking or teaching or preaching, uh, whatever, you know, we say, oh, that was so anointed. Sometimes we, sometimes, honestly, if we're going to be real about it, sometimes what we really mean to say is that moved me emotionally. Because we equate the movement of the Spirit with the emotion. Often uh, an emotion accompanies a move, a move of God and the move of the Spirit, but we need to understand it's not the same thing. Because there are many things that can move your emotion that have nothing to do with God. So, so never, never fall into the trap of saying, I want to move of God because I want to feel like that again. No, 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 no. That's sensuous Christianity. That's all about your feelings. Uh, that's, that, that has nothing to do with it. And when those emotions come, that's, that's wonderful. By the way, the, the, the flip side of that is if you're an emotional person and the Holy Spirit moves and you get emotional, uh, that's wonderful for you. But what about the person who is not that emotional? If that's what it means then they're going to either A, fake the emotions so that they fit in and everybody thinks that God is moving in their life, or B, they'll sit there and, and think to themselves, I guess I'm just not good enough. See, it's, it's not the same thing. They often, are, often accompany each other, but we have to understand that it's, it's not about the emotions. I, don't, I just kind of uh, went off on a tangent there for a minute, but, but, uh, but we, say, we say to somebody, oh, that was so anointed. Um, I, I heard about a man, his, he's, he's a rabbi in Jerusalem. His name is David Nekrutman. He, he's not a Christian. Uh, but through his interaction with different Christian churches, he sometimes is invited to come and lecture at Christian events here in the United States. And he has many Christian friends, pastor friends in the United States. And uh, one night he called up one of his Christian friends, a pastor, and he said to him, he said, I just spoke at a church. And after I was finished, somebody came up and said, you're so anointed. And that, that statement just shocked him. He, he said to his friend, I, I was shocked. And he, he said, what could he, what could he mean by that? Well, his friend, you know, kind of trying, trying to calm him down and said, I think they mean that in the sense that there's something going on with you. Something was happening. And then the, and then the rabbi said, do you, do you realize what that language means? He said, King David was anointed. And his Christian friend said, well, you know, they, they don't mean it in the, in the same way. They're not confused about who you are. They're just telling you that they sense God was on you that night. But the rabbi said, that's just shocking language. And it just shows you the Old Testament view uh, of the Holy Spirit, of, of this anointing, the oil of the Holy Spirit coming upon somebody. That, that, it, that it's this idea that it's not necessarily for everybody, but he came on these great men that he had set aside. And, and actually kind of related to that is the idea of the mantle of the prophet, for example. Uh, the, Elijah and Elisha, 
you know, when Elijah was being taken up in the chariot and, and Elisha wanted a double portion of the spirit and he threw his mantle to him. It wasn't, the man, it wasn't the, that the mantle was magical and that if, well, if you get this piece of cloth, you know, you'll be able to fly. You know, it's nothing like that. It was, it was just the symbol of the fact that the, the coming, coming upon of the Holy Spirit. Same idea. Now, the second way in which oil is used for healing uh, is, I just said it, it's used for healing. There, say it right. Get the emphasis on the right syllable. It helps. Uh, but uh, we see in the symbolism of oil that the Holy Spirit is the presence of God for healing and for power and, and, and anointing. The, the, and these are all themes. And we're not going to take a lot of time on, on all of these because we just don't have time for that much in depth on these. But, but these are all, these uh, themes are all consistent with the Pentecostal understanding of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives today. That He wants to come and the Holy Spirit brings power and this anointing, this authority to stand in the name of Jesus, but it also, it also speaks of healing. You know, I, I, I'll be honest, before I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, I, I never really felt that much of an interest in, in healing ministry. You know, and, and I didn't receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit in order to receive a healing ministry, but as soon as I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I found that automatically, instantly, I, I was interested in and, and, and wanted to be part of a healing ministry. That's just what He does. That's who He is. So uh, we, we still find the Holy Spirit in that picture of oil being poured out, that soothing, healing, empowering, and anointing presence. Now, the, the second symbol that I want to talk about is the dove. The dove. A dove is uh, across religious and cultural boundaries, insofar as I know, universally it is a symbol of peace. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of peace. You know, in both Luke and John, when they record that when, when John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, that when Jesus comes up out of the water, uh, it, it, John says in, in, in one version that the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form, in the bodily form of a dove. In another one, it says, another place it says the Holy Spirit descended as a dove. Either way, it, the, the idea is that the Holy Spirit comes and rests upon Jesus. And Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. So, so the Holy Spirit is the spirit of that part of God, which is about peace. It's about peace. Listen, it is not God's will for His children to live knotted up, anxiety-ridden lives. God doesn't mean for us to live in this world filled with fear and anxiety and worry and turmoil. You know, with all the promises of the New Testament and the inner presence of the Holy Spirit within them, it's amazing to me how many Christians live in constant anxiety. And they live in, the, in all the memories of the past and uh, all the stuff that has is, that is hurt and wounded them and made them afraid. And they drag it on their back like Pilgrim trying to make his progress up the hill. But, but is that enough? No, 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 no. Because then they reach all the way over into next year and, 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 and into all the stuff that might happen. And then they pull that down on top of them as well. Listen, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of peace. And Jesus is the Prince of Peace. You can have peace in the middle of any storm. 
Now, now the third symbol I want to deal with is uh, more engaging and maybe a little, you could say it's a more startling symbol, and that is fire. Now, I'm not going to read all these scripture references for the sake of time, but you can write them down and look them up later. Isaiah 4, 4, uh, uh, Isaiah 4, 4, Matthew 3, 11 and 12. And then we're going to actually look a little bit later today and looking more in depth next week at Acts 2, 3 and 4. And uh, the, the Holy Spirit is revealed in form as a fire in multiple places. Now think about this for the example of the burning bush. We actually mentioned that uh, last week. Fire, first of all, fire is a means of purification. You know, they don't, they don't make many Western movies anymore, but I think they're probably, you know, I mean, when I was a kid, they were very common. Some of you in this place have seen every movie that John Wayne ever made. You know, and, and, and most of them, what would happen is there'd come that moment where somebody had been shot. Maybe they were hit by an arrow and they're trying to dig the arrow out or they're trying to dig the bullet out or, or the, if they were shot by a bullet. And you know what? The problem was they had no triple antibiotic ointment available. So somebody pulls out this Bowie knife and, and they hold it in the fire until it gets really, really, really hot. And then they press that against John Wayne's manly chest. And, and did he cry out? No, no, God forbid. John Wayne never wept a tear in his life. But what's the pur purpose of that hot knife being pressed against that wound? Well, you know, it is possibly to cauterize it, to stop the bleeding. But it's more than that, the idea was they were going to stop the infection. It was to cleanse it. Now, I have no clue if that would actually work. I, I doubt that it would because you probably got things inside there that you can't do the cleanse with that, way, in that method. But, uh, but it is a symbol of the sanctifying, purifying fire. Uh, let, let me ask you this about the burning bush on the mountainside that Moses saw. It says that God spoke to Moses out of a burning bush. Now, here, here's the question. And... In, in, you may think it's a kind of a silly question, but it's, it's really, to me, it's kind of an important question. Did God cause a burning bush to appear or was there a bush there and the fire engulfed it? I believe the second. I believe that, that, that a bush was there because God, when God, what God sent was not a bush. What he sent was the fire. And the fire engulfs that that bush the the miracle was not that there was a fire there you know i mean that was something they would see all the time in the desert you know we lived out in reno for years and and uh and in the summer when you have you know when other places have rainy seasons we had fire season so that's very very normal it's common to have a fire in the wilderness in the desert but so the miracle was not that there was a fire there the miracle was that the fire didn't destroy the bush it, it wasn't burned. Now, now, here's my question. When Moses left and he went back down to his wife, Zipporah, and, and he went back to his father-in-law's house, did the fire stay in that bush? The fire didn't stay in the bush, did it? The fire lifted. It lifted. The fire was gone. However, how many of you believe there were any parasites left on that bush? No, I don't think so. That, that bush was changed. What I'm saying is that the fire of the Holy Spirit is a symbol of the purifying fire of God. John the Baptist said this in Matthew 3.11, 
I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And I just got to say, it blesses me that the first person to preach baptism in fire was not a Pentecostal. He was a Baptist. <laughs> the, the fire, the, the, the flashcard of fire is about sanctification, but it's not simply sanctification usward. The fire is also about the holiness of the presence of God. Here's a little more sobering flashcard about the Holy Spirit. How many of you remember when Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, they went into the, to the tabernacle and they arrogantly said, well, we don't need this old guy. We don't need Aaron. We don't need the high priest. We can light the fire. So Nadab and Abihu go into the Holy of Holies and they're going to light the fire that dwelt between the cherubim and on the uh, Ark of the Covenant. And instead of lighting the fire, what happens the fire leaps out and burns them and destroys them. It kills them. And you'll remember Moses and Aaron, they come in, they find the young men dead, and God tells Moses and Aaron, don't even weep. You, I forbid you to even grieve, take their bodies outside the congregation, and don't even weep. So the issue then is not simply sanctifying fire. It is that the fire itself is true and pure. There, there can't be any substitute for this fire. The, some translations talk about what they did, and it's not real clear exactly what they did, but it says they offered strange fire. And there can't be strange fire. There can't be a man-lit fire. This is a very sobering and important word for us as Pentecostals. And, and it's because it's easy for us to fall in the trap. I mean, I remember during the days of the heights of the, of the revival there down in Pensacola and God was doing some fabulous and wonderful things down there and the spirit of God was moving. But some of the problems that began to crop up in other churches around the nation is people would go there, they would experience the presence of God and God would do these great things. Then they'd go back to their churches and they would try to recreate it, try to make it happen in their church. That's a manlit fire. If you try to make the Holy Spirit show up and do something and try to manipulate the situation, this is a sobering thing. That is a, that is a strange fire. That is not a, uh, uh, that, that is a manlit fire. You know? And in some places, in some congregations, in some uh, denominations, the issue is the absence of fire. You know I mean, How many of you remember the old country song that said, there's nothing cold as ashes once the fire goes out? Anybody remember that? But so, so there, there are some places where the absence of fire is the deal. For us, for a Pentecostal church, for a charismatic church, the more sobering reality, what we have to guard against is wildfire, strange fire. Because God will not suffer that e either. It has to be real fire. It has to be God-sent fire. And, and that's why, you know, when we pray here for, for, for revival, we pray for a move of God, the whole idea is that when we do that, we're not praying to say, God, let what you do in this place be like what I've seen in the past. You know, because what we want is God's move of the Spirit for us here. And we don't know what that will look like. We don't know fully the shape that it's going to take. But we can't, we can't try to make it look like any place else or become like any place else. 
we've got to let God light that fire. And, and it comes when we begin to pray. And, you know, I, I think of it this way. I think our prayers and our hungry hearts are like the kindling for the fire. Because when we get hungry, when we begin to press in, that's when God says, okay, now I know you're ready. Here comes the fire. So, and the purpose of this God sent fire is, is holiness. God wants to purify a wounded people with the sanctifying fire of the Holy Spirit. All right, let's move to the fourth symbol. The fourth symbol is water. And I could, I could teach on, uh, on this one for an hour. Uh, this, I would love to speak at this one on this one at length sometime. Maybe I will. But let me just start by saying this. And this is something I, I just love this. There's a passage I'm going to read in a moment. But once you understand what's happening in the context of it, I think it'll take on a little extra meaning for you. But let, let's just talk about this. The, the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was always from ancient times associated with the outpouring of water. And each day of the feast, it, it went on for eight days, each day of the Feast of Tabernacles, three men would go down to the Pool of Siloam. Now, Siloam literally means sent. That's what it means. Okay, anybody remember what uh, later on in the New Testament where the Pool of Siloam shows up? Well, if, if you do, hold on to that. Hold that thought. Three people would go down to the Pool of Siloam. They'd fill up these big jugs of water and and then as they would, they would go back to the temple of God, and as these men approached the temple, trumpets would sound, and then they would go inside the temple, and they would pour that water into the altar. There was a hole in the, in the altar, and they would pour that water into the altar. And when they did that, it was a joyful moment for Israel. It was celebrational. It was a festival, festival of delight, and people would just rejoice. It was joyful. And they, that went on for seven days. And then on the eighth day... It was just a regular old hoedown. It was a fiesta, big time. And, and when they would pour out the water on the eighth day, the unexpected would always happen. I, I read that scholars uh, learned how to juggle, and they would begin to juggle in that moment because that was unexpected. You know, so here's this rabbinical scholar juggling. It, it was unexpected. People are like, oh, didn't see that coming. That's the kind of thing happened on the eighth day. They'd be, they'd be dancing and laughing and all kinds of things like that. Now, where does this show up in the story and what we're talking about? In John, it says this about Jesus. John 7, 37 to 38. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It must have been the most shocking thing in the world he could say on the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacle when they've been pouring water into the altar every day for seven days. And here on the eighth day, on this great day of celebration, they pour the water out and Jesus, and Jesus says, you know, to them at the after. after after all of this, it's all done. They've celebrated, they've, they've feasted, they've rejoiced, they've danced, and, and they've been pouring this water out on, from the pool of Siloam as a symbol for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus stands up and says, all right, now if you've had, if you've had all of this religion and you're still thirsty, now come to me and drink. Because he says, I am the pool of Siloam. I am sent. Siloam means sent. I am sent to bring this to you. 
Flashcards. Flashcards. Then, then there was the blind man. You remember the story. Jesus makes the clay and he puts it on his eyes. And then he tells him to do what? He, he tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. He tells him to, uh, to go wash in the water from the pool of Siloam and for, for healing and for cleansing. And what does water do? It cleanses. Water cleanses. It washes. And, and let me tell you something else water does. Water refreshes. Water has a strange effect, doesn't it? You ever get in a, where you take a shower when you're exhausted? Maybe you mowed the lawn and you're tired and you're hot and you're dirty and you take a shower. And when you're done, you're not just clean, you feel better. It's a strange thing about water. Furthermore, just as it did during the Feast of Tabernacle, water makes us joyful. I mean, okay, come on now. Be honest with me. I'm asking you, I'm watching you. How many of you often find yourself spontaneously and irrepre irrepressibly singing in the shower? Let me see your hands. Come, uh, come on, uh, four, five, five of you? You know, the rest of you, there is a lake, lake of fire waiting. <laughs> you know, or, or, or you just think about, you know, people flock to the beaches and they jump in the water and, and splash and play and their life, they just, there's just joy. There's something about it. And there's just something about this outpouring of the Holy Spirit for joy and cleansing and liberty and refreshing poured on us from Him who was sent. Then, then there's this wonderful symbol of wind. We've talked a little bit about that in previous weeks, the outpouring of wind. Now, now, now here's an intriguing passage of Scripture from John 20. There's, a, there's actually a great deal of co controversy about this passage, but everyone has their own view on it, and mine is no better or no worse than anyone else's, but it's mine, and I have the microphone, so I'm going to tell you what it is. And if you disagree, I don't care. That's all right. It's, it's, not, it's not a life or death, salvation or you know, uh, type of situation. But here's what it says. Jesus is with his disciples, and he says, and the Bible says, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, there are a couple ways that people approach this passage. Some people teach that there in that moment they received the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit's witness and presence was not manifested until the day of Pentecost. Now, here's what's wrong with that uh, interpretation for me, because there is, there is no witness. Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit, but there's no sense, there's no indication that they do. There's, there's no indication that anything happens after he says that. So, so here's the only way the passage makes any sense to me. It, it is this. Jesus is priest, Jesus is king, but Jesus is also prophet. And I think Jesus was operating as a prophet in that moment. He was giving them a prophetic word. He's, he's saying, this is going to happen. Here's a flashcard. When you hear the wind blow, then receive it. It's as if I said to you, look, Pastor Jason is coming to your house at two o'clock this afternoon. When he knocks on the door, open the door and receive him. 
I think Jesus is saying, when you hear the wind blow, don't stiff God. Don't fight him. Don't resist. When this happens, you'll recognize it because it will sound like this. And when that happens, receive it. You know, these disciples, as we know from reading about them, they were not particularly clever chaps. You know, Jesus said things to them straight out and they still didn't get it often. But I think they left that meeting that night and I think they said to each other, hmm, uh, what do you reckon that means? What in the world do you think that meant when he breathed? He breathed out loud for us and he said, receive the, what in the world does that mean? And I think somebody, probably John, may have said something like, I don't know what it meant, meant today, but I just know that we'll know it when we see it. We'll know it when we see it. Because three plus two equals five when the teacher holds the flashcard up. And it is going to equal three plus two equals five on the arithmetic arithmetic test. So, so next week we're going to talk about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the second chapter of Acts. But for, but for tonight, let me just kind of close with this. I, I told you I was going to come back to, to this. Uh, here, here it is. Now remember, Simon Peter is, is a fisherman. He, he's not a rabbinical scholar. He's just a fisherman. He's just a guy. Working class. He's got calluses on his hands and calluses on his brain. For the last three years of his life, life has just blown his socks off. And, and he's walked with Jesus for three years, and now he fails. He denies Jesus. He's renewed. He's restored. He's lifted back up. He spends 40 days with Jesus. The upper room happens, and the power of the Holy Spirit comes. And what does it say? Acts chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. Suddenly, a sound like a mighty rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Wind, also same word for breath, the sound of it, the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Then, verse 3, there appeared to them tongues as of fire being distributed and resting on each of them. The boiling Shekinah glory of God appears in a tumult over their heads and, and, and whirls off until over every person's head in the entire room, there's a physical, uh, visible, dancing fire over their head. Then it says in verse 4, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them to speak. Then it says, and I'm, I'm just... I'm going to deal with it much more next week, but for tonight I just want to zero in on this one thing. The, the people came. Thousands gathered around. They're all saying, what's going on? What, what's going on? What is this? Some of them said, these men are drunken, which that part always makes me laugh when I read it. Because if you read the entire chapter, they're saying these things in languages that they don't know. They're speaking languages, but all the people there from different parts of the world understand them. So they're speaking all these languages from all over the world. And somebody says, oh, I know what it is. They're drunk. Because we all know when you get drunk, you get smarter. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's what makes me laugh, is that somebody who actually say that. Oh, yeah, they're speaking languages that they've never learned. They must be drunk. But Peter, in his peculiarly, peculiarly earthy wisdom, he looks at him and says, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. 
He, he said, do you know what it would take to get 100 people so stoned that they can't talk plain by 9 o'clock in the morning? He said, there is not that much thunderbird in all of Jerusalem. But then he says in verses 15 and 16, these are not drunk as you suppose since it's the third out of the hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Another translation says this is that. And Peter quotes this obscure little passage that had laid on the floor of Judaism for 800 years. Now it was there. People knew it. They had read it. They, but they did, it didn't make any sense to them because to them, the anointing of the Holy Spirit came on kings. It came on prophets. It came on warriors. It came on heroes. It came on judges. Nevertheless, Joel said, I will pour, my, pour out my spirit on all flesh. Remember what I said about when the water is poured out on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles? When that happens, the unexpected happens. The unexpected takes place. And Joel goes on, we're not going to read the rest of the verse, but you can read it and see that this is all there. Joel goes on and says, I'm, I'm going to give children words of prophecy. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Well, that's wrong. Prophets are, are gray, old gray-haired men. They, they look like rabbis. This is unexpected. Then he, says, then he says, your old men will dream dreams. Well, that's wrong too. Old men don't dream dreams. They don't have dreams. They have memories. He says, I'll give old men dreams. That's unexpected. Then he says, I'll tell you what else. I'm going to let your, I'm going to let your servants in on it. Everybody, irrespective of their station in life, it's for everybody. What? Not just for prophets and kings and judges and, and heroes? This is unexpected. Peter says, this is that. This is that little prophecy in Joel chapter 2. We saw that flashcard. We watched it for eight centuries. And here it is. This is that. Wind. Fire, oil, water, and a dove. One spirit who can do a vast multiplicity of different operations in the lives of needy people. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your presence in this place. We thank you for the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we as Pentecostal people, we're aware of the Holy Spirit, we're aware of His work, but God, I, I feel like, Lord, that even, even those of us who've lived in the Pentecostal world, we've grown up in Pentecostal churches, that we still haven't fully begun to even just scratch the surface of who He is and what He does. And Lord, I pray that today that You would just begin to stir up a hunger in us to say, Lord, I want that oil. I want that anointing. I want the water to cleanse me. I want the, the, to, the water to quench my thirst for the things of this world. I want the, the fire to, to purify my life. I, I want the dove to rest upon my life so I can walk in the peace of God. I, I, I want all of these things, the work of, of the Spirit in my life, Lord. And so, Lord, I pray that even now, God, that you would just begin to answer that prayer, those that need peace. I pray that the Holy Spirit of peace would impart peace to them. Peace that doesn't make any sense. 
That even we ourselves look at our life circumstances and say, I don't know why I have peace. This doesn't make any sense at all. But we have that peace that passes understanding. For, the, for those, Lord God, that, that need an anointing, a power, a, a cleansing from the fire, a washing from your, uh, from your water of your spirit, a refreshing from your spirit, whatever it is, God, I pray that we would press in and we'd say, Lord, I just want more of you. That we won't say, I want more of church. We won't say, I want more, more money in the bank. I want a better job. I want this. I want that. Because, God, that's not where we're going to find any satisfaction. But, God, that we would just say, Lord, I want more of you. Because, Lord, you are all of these things and more. And it's in you we find all that we need. And we ask all of these in the strong, mighty, powerful name of Jesus. Amen.